Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Our Lives in Medicine. This episode features Dr. Daniel Olaya. Dr. Olaya is an aeromedical physician and qualified in aerospace medicine. He's based in London, England, but you might find his office anytime you see a plane in the sky. Dr. Olaya is also a current anesthesiology resident in London. He also co-hosts O-Twins on YouTube with his twin brother, where they explore life through the lens of medicine and adventure. He is also the host of the Aerospace Medicine Podcast. He is a fitness enthusiast and has successfully completed the Carolina Reaper Challenge, or his twin did, but we'll still give him credit for it as well. He is also the co-founder of the Afro Health Initiative, which aims to bring medical resources and advancements from around the world to Africa. Dr. Olaya is a super fun and interesting individual, and I hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, please feel free to share with others. Also like us on Instagram at Our Lives in Medicine and comment on the things you enjoyed about the episode and things you'd like to hear in other episodes. And as always, if you need some good beats to study or get some work done or just catch some good vibes, listen to the intro and outro and check the show notes for the artist credits. I hope you enjoy and I hope you have a great day. So we are live with Dr. Olaya, Dr. Daniel Olaya, uh, London, England, right? <laughs> That's it. That's it. All right, sweet. So how's everything going in London right now? Yeah, everything is, uh, I mean, personally, okay. In fact, personally, very good. But as as, as a, a general 
country, of course, everyone's going through challenges all over the world, including us. So yeah, there's a lot of, uh, it's an interesting time. Yeah, there's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of protesting right now. And uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a real interesting time. How are the protests in London? Are they still going on? Yes, yes. So they're happening in, in dribs and drabs so far. But at the beginning, they, they were really, uh, really quite something. And I think the most interesting thing about it was the fact that we had a protest against the protest. And that I think we were one of the only countries in the world who, who had a, a pretty formidable protest from civilians against what well, against the, the, the Black Lives Matter protest, which is probably the most interesting thing there. Um, that is interesting. That, yep. Yep. Yeah, indeed. Indeed it is. And, and, you know, you could take it as deep as you want. But um, yeah, it's it's it's, it's really interesting. Uh, Let's see. Did you things are cooling down a, li- a little bit? I'm sorry. Sorry for the delay. I was going to just going to ask if you got involved or did you kind of just watch from um, from home? Mm, so funnily enough, I was actually at work uh, the first few protests, which I would have loved to, to go to. Um, and again, I think something playing in my mind was the risk of coronavirus and actually going being a medical professional working in on the front line in emergency room often in the covid red areas that would put me as a super spreader if i did have it right so uh, i think that's very important for people in my position to, to think of so bearing that in mind again that decision was out of my hands because i was working when it was on and then later on uh, when the protest was still going on, I had a choice to go to them. And I thought at this stage, when there was a lot more violence and there was a lot more clashes, I thought, I don't agree with this right now. I agree with the protest. I agree with the fact that, you know, we need to do something about what's going on. But I think there's a better way to do it. And there's 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 wiser ways to do it. I, I am a full supporter of the uh, of the movement. But I think we need to come together and we need to choose certain ways of doing things which which don't put us at risk. That's that's my number one goal here. I don't want people to be at risk. And I think it would be negligent of medical professionals like myself, like us, to put people at medical risk. Black people are at increased risk of being seriously harmed more than other people from this virus. And, and, and that's a fact. So we can't forget about that. No matter how passionate we are, we need to be wise. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, it's nowadays, with like you said, the, as it got progressively more violent and, you know, the protesting during the day and then kind of just violence at night, it seemed it's definitely not worth it to get, you know, involved in that sense. You can still be a supporter, you can still be an ally, but you don't want to get out there and get in a street fight with some, you know, with someone. So that's definitely exactly. good. Exactly, exactly. But we hope, I hope that the effects of what's been going on are long-standing and we continue to fight the good fight um and uh you know it really does carry on this this is not just a one-time thing and again we, we gotta remember that in the uk like nothing particularly happened in the uk it was all the us stuff that happened and then we reacted to it so again if you really think about the fact that nothing's actually happened here you then think okay so what, what are we actually protesting about are we protesting about the u.s stuff or are we protesting about our stuff or are we protesting about both and what does that actually mean and, what, and what's the significance of that um so you know i think that's that's really really Im- important to, to bear in mind over here yeah absolutely and you know i'm not really well versed on things like that in the uk are there a lot of shootings of unarmed black people in the uk as well 
No, so so we the policemen normally don't carry guns, which is great. So guns, you, you don't see them. You, you just don't see them. If you see them, it's a big deal. I remember going to America and you know seeing guns and really being shaken by it. Just the, just the sight of seeing a gun in front of my eyes, it's not something I normally see. So I associate it with bad things. I don't like seeing them. So uh, people being killed is not, is not really a thing, which obviously is a huge difference to uh, the USA and how far thing, how, ra how racism can manifest itself. However, there is certainly institutionalized racism in which manifests itself in a very different way in the UK compared to the US, but it's still here and, and that's why we were protesting um, and black people definitely see the, the worst side of it. Interesting. So yeah, it seems like the racism issue is something that is obviously beyond, it's, it's definitely not located just within American borders. It's definitely, um, it doesn't even necessarily have to be just against black people. It's just a racism as an issue is a worldwide thing and something to definitely be addressed. And it's interesting that it took you know, there's millions of thousands of cases before this uh, George Floyd incident, but it just took something like that in particular for the whole world to kind of say, wow, this is something that's going on everywhere and we need yep, to do yep. something. Yep. 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 Yeah. No, it's, it's, I think it's, it really is intriguing because this whole query about, uh, of course, it's not just black people who suffer racism. Um, you know, racism is, is everywhere for different creeds and races and colors and different languages and it's, it's everywhere, right? Even even within Africa, even within, you know, countries where there's only, in inverted commas, black people. But I, again, there's this other debate on top where some people have said, um, you know, what about uh, Asian lives matter? You know, what about other, you know, different, you know, races? And, and again, it's, 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 a, it's a real tough debate because I've I've listened to uh, arguments where people have said oh our, the racism against us was worse than yours and simply said no no our racism was bad as well and then someone come in the middle to say okay they're both bad but this is what we're focusing on at the moment and you know it's one step at a time which which I think which is my opinion anyway you know I think this racism is bad but right now this is the focus this is what we want to get on top of and it's one step at a time yeah yeah, it's interesting. And I think looking at one piece of the puzzle and solving that can help the other pieces as well. So um, I think if you can remove the institutional, be whatever institution it may be, even within medicine, you know, healthcare, things like that, there's institutionalized prejudices. And if we can work on getting those removed, I think it would help everyone who might be a victim of it. So exactly, exactly. Step by step. Absolutely. You know, what's that inch old saying? Inch. Exactly. It's like, what's that saying? It's like step by step, you know, you, you go long, you know, you go far. It's like, in order to, oh, what is, no, it's a journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. So that's there how you go. get there. Yep. That's there how you go. get there. We're taking that step right now. We're taking that step right now. There we go. Absolutely. And hopefully it won't take a thousand miles to get some change. <laughs> you know, that'd be good. <laughs> that'd be great. So I was talking recently about this with someone and I was telling them how I personally have been pulled over you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And I've wow. only gotten, I've only gotten two speeding tickets. So it kind of tells you, you know, it, at least to me, it suggests that there was a reason I got pulled over a lot. And the people I was talking to said they've, they were like 40 years old and they've been pulled over like four times their whole life. And, wow. <laughs> and I was telling them, you know, that I can remember one time in particular getting pulled over. And the first thing the cop said when he got to my car window was, where's the drugs kid? And, no way. No yeah, and way. This is when I was in medical school. So <laughs> that's like, Where, you know. Where's the drugs kid? Where's yes, the first drugs thing, kid? First thing I'm he shocked. said, yeah. I'm first shocked. thing he said, yeah. 
and then another wow. time first thing the um first thing that what i was asked Wait, what did I, you say i just kind of laughed i'm like i don't i don't i don't know i'm heading home from from the library that's what i said i'm like i'm i don't have any drugs i'm going home from the library you know it's like i i was kind of i wasn't in shock at that point because stuff like that had happened to me before but it's i think the problem is that i was used to it already and that's kind of what i was explaining is that wasn't a surprise for me it didn't take me it wasn't taken aback because i'm just used to it and i think that kind of gets to the I know, and that kind of gets to the root of, you know, why that's, uh, why there are problems that we need to face. So, yeah, it's wow. tough. <laughs> wow, yeah. That's, that, hey, that's got me going, man. That's got me going. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Now, as I said, this was when I was, I was coming home from the library in medical school. I was exhausted and I just wanted to get home. And, you know, I was wearing sweatpants. I was wearing a hoodie because it's cold in the library. And so I guess I might have looked the, the quote unquote part, but, you know, um, that was the first question. Not can I see your ID? Can I, you know, what you know, know why I pulled you over? It was just where's the drugs, kid. So I was 26 at the time. So it was interesting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So there's there's things I think that are in place that we need to work on uh, to get to make changes. So I think that would be it would be great if our kids didn't have to, didn't have to deal with that same thing. Hmm. For sure, man. Like the situation in the usa i, I mean yeah this situation is everywhere but you guys are going through a lot man my heart goes out to you. you guys are really going through a lot wow well like you said though we're all fighting the good fight so it's good to see that it's uh it's not just you know one town fighting the fight it's the whole world so that's good that's it exactly we, we, we support you and you support us and everyone's supporting each other through this absolutely man so but yeah i mean we'll uh We'll maybe probably get back on that at some point. But what about you? You know, what is uh, where are you from originally? You from London originally? Yes, yes. So I was born in the UK. I'm I'm British. Um, however, I have Nigerian descent. So when any when anybody asks me where am I from, I, I like saying Nigeria first of all. In fact, I, I say Lagos, which is the capital, the second capital city of uh, Nigeria. I'm I'm very uh, well connected to my African roots, and um, you know that's 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 where I'm from. Um, although obviously I'm, I'm British. So I was born in London and uh, spent the first 10 years of my life there. And then I moved to a rural uh, place called Devon, a county called Devon. And uh, the rest of my sort of childhood, uh, secondary school, high school, I, I grew up there. And, and uh, funnily enough, uh, it was very, a very vanilla place. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, think, I think that experience has really covered uh, who, who I am today in, in a good way, in a good way uh, for many, many different varying reasons. Um, so that, that's, that's where I'm from. Interesting. That's awesome. So what was it like leaving London and then going out into the country? It was, it was great. It was great. I was, I was 10 years old. I have a twin brother who, who's also in the same field as me. And uh, we moved together with, with my father, who's, who's a doctor, and uh, he was working at the hospital there. And it was a really good school. So he said, you know, do the test for it. If you get in, you get in and uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, there's six of us in my family. So my other siblings stayed in London. We got into the school and we're very blessed. Uh, so we, we moved we moved down and there was just three of us, me and my twin and my dad. And we were just there. We're living in a hotel. You know, so it was a real grind, actually. I remember being there and thinking, oh, this is fun. This is great. You know, in this place, it was next to the seaside. Um, again, uh, it was it was very, it wasn't very multicultural, but... I wasn't, we weren't uh, alarmed by that. We weren't concerned by that. For us, 
it was interesting you know people were interested in us and and i never really saw or heard real racism like that there were there were things that happened um as a kid but i was more excited to be in a new place um and people were interested in us so it was it was a good experience it was really and again the school was good and and uh, yeah it was it was nice that's awesome i mean first of all that's pretty cool that you have a twin that you got to live with there in like a hotel and as a kid staying in a hotel is awesome so that's that's pretty fun and then you have your twin there with you but you also had four other siblings back in london so that's cool you have a big pretty big family it sounds like yeah so so two other siblings so four of us in in oh excuse me excuse me yep that's that's okay and and obviously the two parents so the six of us in total um and uh yeah it was it was an adventure I i think uh you know looking back and Comparing my story to other people's, I think it really depends how you, you, you look at the situation. It could have affected someone else very, very negatively. But for us, it was it was an adventure. It was great. Things weren't always easy. You know, there were issues, but uh, it was an adventure. It was good. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty cool. That's cool. And then you have your twin brother who's also in your in the same field. That's pretty awesome. So, mm. um and then what about like your your route to school? I know over in the UK it's a lot different than here. Can can you maybe talk about how you got into school and your training route? For sure, for sure. So how I got into medical school. So like I said, I come from a very medical family, and uh, it's a kind of a, a running joke over here that if you're from uh, a Nigerian or you know family, like it's medicine, uh, accounting, law, and a few, and maybe some engineering, but medicine's the, the 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 first one there. So you know it was always expected of us to at least try. Obviously, my father's a doctor, so we you know it was it was always there. We we worked hard and and uh, we we, we kind of went through. But the process, how it works, is at 18 years old, you do a bunch of exams called A levels. These are the second stage of a set of exams. The first set is GCSEs. You do GCSEs when you're 16. You do A-levels when you're 17 and 18. And a combination of these uh, are combined, and then they decide whether you get into medical school. There's around 20-something medical schools in the UK, so it's very competitive. And uh, you have the interview, you do a personal statement, and you do a special uh, test. It's called the UK CAT, like different shapes and different numbers, all those different things. And you can apply to four medical schools and um, and, and you go from there. So yeah, that, that was it. And again, we we're very lucky slash blessed and, and we worked hard and we got in first time at 18. And that, that, was, that was really, uh, that was a really interesting time because I recall looking back now that I didn't really know what it meant to be a doctor. I didn't really understand what the doing and being of medicine was all i understood was that become a doctor that's what you should do because that's good and that's achieving and pass these exams and do well and you become a doctor and you go to medical school that was kind of what was in my mind of course i did work experience of course i was in hospitals i understood you know the 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 service level of of what it meant to be a doctor but you know the deeper level of me being a doctor I don't think it really cut through until I became a doctor, funnily enough. Right. Yeah. Right. That's funny. And what would you say now, having been, you know, through everything, what would you say the meaning is now to you? So now at at this stage, this may change, but at at this stage, the way I feel, if I was speaking to my younger self, uh, trying to explain what it is to be a doctor, what it is to be, you know, a medical practitioner, I would say that your your life and and who you are 
it changes and it, it really is a vocation. Being a doctor, it changes who you are. You have a set of responsibilities and you have a, a set way that you need to look at people, at people and situations as a medical doctor. And your life should be, your life should be governed and is governed by, by medicine if you become a real vocation. Um, and on top of that, I think that there's, there's a deeper set of principles, which you can only understand if you've been through them and if you understand them in a very real practical way. For example, for example, I remember you must, I must have been 30 medical students. So I was, I was, I was 20 years old, uh, halfway through medical school, two years left. And, um, we ha we had a feedback session. So this feedback session, we see a patient and we we tell the consultant, the the boss, the attending about the patient, and we talk about differentials. And it's just a nice case based learning sort of technique. So I remember doing that and reading off a uh, essay that I'd, I'd I'd written about all the differentials, everything. So everything was nicely laid out. And then he said, put put that down. You know, I don't want to I don't want to you know hear that. I want to hear what you think about A, B, and C. And I really struggled. I really struggled. And I remember we finished and he told everyone to leave the room apart from the other doctors. And he said, Daniel, you don't really get medicine, do you? And I was really offended. He said, he said, Daniel, you're a really nice guy. All of us really love you, but you don't really get medicine. And you should really think about what medicine is because you don't get it yet. Once you get it, it'll be good. But right now you don't get it. And I want you to understand that because you need to try and get it before you graduate. And I, I think that, that couldn't be more true. Um, again, you know, being at such a young age, going uh, through it like the way I did, yeah, of course I worked hard, but going through it like the way many young kids do, they don't fully grasp it. It's just an accolade, an achievement until you're actually there as a doctor trying to save lives. Mm. Yeah, and starting at 18, that's interesting because, you know, here it's like, I think, unless you're one of those whiz kids, you start when you're 22, 23 which is different, but starting at 18 is intense. And also you said you can only apply to four schools. Precisely. Yep. You can only apply to four medical schools and wow. you have a safety. Yeah. You have a safety option. So you can choose biomedical sciences or, or pharmacy if you want. Wow. Okay. So no pressure, right? <laughs> Low stress. So <laughs> that's yeah. uh. so exactly. So when you did kind of, you, you, you had that moment with the attending who said, you're not really getting it right now. What was it that kind of flipped the switch and made you understand? So at, at that point, again, hindsight is a really beautiful thing. At that point, I didn't understand what he meant. I only fully understood when I reminisced about it and I thought about it as a doctor, as an F2 doctor, uh, when I was really going through, uh, I felt... Uh, a tough time when I'd when I'd ridden the the turbulent plane of the plane that is being a junior doctor, and I thought, wow, so is this is this what it's like? And then I started to reminisce all my experiences, and I thought about back to that, and I thought I didn't know what it is. I didn't know what it was, what it is, but now I do. Now I'm getting it, 
um, from everything to seeing a patient to synthesizing the information that, that, that they give you and formulating it into an action plan and thinking, okay, what do I actually want this action plan to do? And then going from there, thinking about your investigations, thinking about the investigations and how much they cost and going from there and thinking about the action plan, how you communicate with the nurses, how you communicate with the other doctors, where you're going in your career, everything. You know, it's a whole real ecosystem or a web and you, everyone needs to get it themselves to really move forward and to really own what it is to be a medical doctor well that i kind of i asked that kind of as a cheat question because that helped me <laughs> you know now i feel like i know a little bit better even what to expect so that's awesome i mean it's something i'm looking forward to as well it's kind of just it's one thing to graduate and become a doctor but now it's like how do i really become you know someone who can navigate the healthcare field and you know, yes. change lives in a positive way. So that's that's what yes. I'm looking forward to. I do not know the answer yet, so I'll get back to you when I do. <laughs> Please do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you'll, you'll find the answer. I'm sure you will. For sure, yeah. So I got to catch up to you, but once I get there, I'll be excited. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, so how did you land on, uh, you, you do aerospace and flight medicine. How did you land on, the, on those fields? And can you maybe just discuss what those are exactly? We take a, a quick uh, break, real quick. So yeah. Everest. So I'm, I'm trying to not go on for too long. Okay, All right. So, so I'll just ask again then. So, so yeah, you, um, you are now practicing in aerospace and flight medicine. Could you maybe discuss what that is, and then also kind of how you got into it? Yes. Yes. Okay. So aerospace medicine is a field of medicine based on occupational health looking after passengers and flight crew making sure they get to where they're going and they can do their job in flight safely so it's, it's based around occupational medicine people doing a job are looking after them doing a job and then it expands okay so then we have aeromedical retrieval evacuation and transfer so actually taking sick people to and fro from a flight surgical process as a family physician would do making sure people are fit to fly then we have assistance which is actually coordinating the whole process of you know making sure people have a, a good plan of getting from a to b because of course there's many different types of aircraft, there's many different types of technicalities that they can go through. And then there's civil aviation, um, which involves looking after, you know, uh, commercial airlines and, and the health regulations there. So this area is extremely vast. And there's many, many more things that I haven't even talked about. Um, but there's a very, very big uh, component of military uh, work as well. But the center is really occupational medicine, like looking after the people flying and then it, and then it expands from there that sounds pretty so that, sweet yeah mm, no it's it's a it's a real it's it's like the way i like to think of it is there's a tiny little door there's a tiny little entrance and you can't really see it it's real niche and then when you open the door the whole thing opens up and you're like oh, wow what is this and that is aviation aerospace medicine <laughs> that's um, awesome no, what and of course there's the space medicine too i haven't even mentioned that which is huge huge right now Wow, space medicine. <laughs> yep, yep, space medicine. I mean, uh, Tesla, SpaceX, they just went up. Um, they're, they're still up there having a great time. So now is a really, really sexy time for space medicine. There's a lot of investment, I think, in the future. So yeah, it's a real cool time. So uh, uh, watch. What are what are some of the cases, like some typical cases you see, and then maybe some like, you know, random wild cases that you see? 
Mm. So uh, how did I get into it? How did I, I'll tell you how I got into it. So uh, like I said, as I uh, became a doctor, my first two years uh, are similar to your intern years, which you're going into now. They call it F1 and F2 foundation, one foundation two. So you do different types of jobs. So you do three jobs a year, each of them are four months. I know you guys, you, you get your, you get matched to a speciality and then you, you do that from, from then on. Mm -hmm. um, for us, it's a little bit different. And, and that time is very important because then we choose what we like from those things. So is that, it, it's, it's very pivotal because if you don't get a certain view or certain experience on one type, then you might, you might never get experience. You might just choose one. So for me, I started with acute medicine. I started with uh, orthopedics. I did uh, geriatrics, um, elderly care medicine. That was in my first year, and during that time, during that time, I I had a a turbulent period. Like I said, you know, understanding medicine and becoming a doctor, and I think one of the hardest things that I uh, went through and had to understand was the unwritten rules within medicine, the rules about asking for help, the rules about communication, the unseen hierarchy, the rules between communication with nurses and asking to do things, the rules between, you know, uh, being competitive and respecting people at the same time um, and, and getting things done and being, being efficient. I don't think there's any one doctor who has ticked off all the box and is completely balanced, you know, that would be a perfect doctor. But I think it's important to, to have your eye on all these things. Um, and and in particular, in particular, I remember uh, having an issue actually asking nurses to do stuff because up until I had um, graduated, I'd, I'd I'd never done that. I'd I'd always done it myself. You know, if we need to clean a patient or if we need to give some drugs, you know, if we if we, if we did any of those things, um, I I was actually a nursing assistant before I graduated as a doctor. So I remember doing it myself. So when I actually became a doctor. I remember thinking, why would I ask a nurse to do it if I could do it myself? Of course, some some things nurses have to do. So yeah, I would communicate and negotiate for, for those things to be done. But a lot of the things, I would just do it myself. And then someone told me, a senior told me one time, Daniel, that's the wrong thing to do. And actually told me off in a very a very stern way that you're wasting everyone's time, that that's not your job to do. And then I had to completely change my paradigm, how I thought, and asking nurses to do stuff. And I always felt a little bit awkward about doing that. And again, this is part of understanding what it is to be a doctor and understanding the role and that the role is a thinking role. Of course, you use your hands, but you're, you're a decision maker. You're a decision maker. You set plans. And when something happens with that plan, you make a decision, you reassess and you make another plan and you go from there. I think that's a nice way to live your life, actually. But, but you know, I remember one time we, we uh, it was a night shift. Uh, I was tired, super tired. And we had a patient who needed to go for a chest x-ray. I think they had heart failure or something. And I asked one of the nurses, uh, super polite, uh, please can you take this patient for a chest x-ray? And then she said, you're not doing anything, you do it. <laughs> mm, interesting. And all the nurses were standing there together and I didn't know what to say because I asked super polite and I didn't want to create an argument. So I felt super awkward and I, and I, I looked at her and I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it then. And then fortunately, another nurse pitied me and said, don't worry, Daniel, just take it easy. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, why did she do that to me? Like, why did she think, 
why does anybody think that they can do that to another person? This is a professional environment. We have certain things that we need to do. And, and then I thought about another doctor who was very stern, same level as me, junior doctor, who was very stern with nurses. There's no emotion, no, no please, no thank you. Um, and he just asked them to do stuff. And, and they would do it. There would, be, there, would, there would never be any middle conversation about it. It would, it would just happen. And I thought, he's not, he's not like particularly engaging. He's not particularly nice. What, why are they doing it? And I'm still understanding you know, that dynamic. But I think there was something to do with understanding his role. He, he, clearly he clearly understood this is my job and that's their job. And, and I need to get my stuff done. And, 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 and that's it. I wouldn't say it's, it's as black and white as that. Of course, that we're all humans. But again, um, you know, through, through, through that, through that first year, you know, I understood a lot of those things. Anyway, like I was saying, um, my my rotations, I had orthopedics, and during orthopedics, uh, that was when I had my first taste of aviation medicine because we had a lot of doctors bringing in patients via helicopter and air ambulance, and I would see these doctors walk in with their jumpsuits looking all cool, you know, taking these bruised and battered, uh, bleeding patients into the to the department, and for the first time in my journey within medicine, I thought this is really amazing. And what I thought was amazing about it was just the story, the adventure behind it. This doctor has scooped this person off the road. There's been an accident. They've scooped this person off oil rig or wherever they came. And now they're in front of me. They've had their journey. They've managed to keep this patient stable until they've come here. And now they're here for surgery and, and they're passing this baton to me. This is cool. I need to do my job properly. You know, it gave me a sense of duty. It gave me a sense of, okay, like let's get on this. Let's let's make this let's make this thing happen, you know. And they would go, and then I would look at this patient and say, okay, you're my my responsibility. And of course, we had senior doctors, but again, um, I I assumed that responsibility, and I think that was a big part of me moving forward and understanding, you know, what it what it meant to to, to be a doctor. So I'd say that was my first glimpse of uh, aerospace medicine, and then I had a, another taste of aerospace medicine aviation medicine in when i was doing neurosurgery as a junior doctor again same situation we had these doctors flying in from all over the place bringing these patients with brain injuries who needed brain surgery so the situation in in the uk is that we have the major center and then they'll get flown in from from all over the place so we had quite quite a good uh, volume of people coming in and again i would take the i would take the handovers i would listen to these stories and then I got engrossed in the situation. I'd ask question after question after question, and my curiosity start started to really, really build. And we had another neurosurgeon come in who started working with us, and we became friends and we started talking. And he opened me up to all the. He he started telling me about all the other stuff that he'd done in his career. Uh, he was a, he was what we call a portfolio doctor. So he'd had a long, long career before uh, settling down doing neurosurgery. Um, he'd, he'd been a repatriation doctor, he'd evacuated patients from all, all over the world in air ambulances and commercial um, airliners and he'd, he'd done psychiatry work and, and again, I would just love listening to these stories. I would ask him question after question after question and what I focused on was his experience with, again, taking patients from A to B in the air and he would love telling me. He was, he was super, super open. You know, you find these gems within any career that you're in that they, they just love telling you stories and it's it's in the stories that things come alive i think that's why i think stories are so important to learning um as, as a rule but 
uh, through through this experience, he said, you know what, Dan, you know, it seems that you you really like a career in this, so you should, you know, try to get a little more experience. So I thought back and I said, okay, I'll do this. And then I, I contacted all the air ambulance, uh, aviation, aerospace, medicine companies in Europe, and uh, <laughs> I, I sent some emails. I I, I called uh, a few, and at first I didn't really know what I was asking for. I didn't really know what I wanted. I just I just kind of wanted to stick my head in and say, okay, hi. Um, but as as I spoke to more and more, this was in this was in one afternoon. I remember having a list on my computer, thinking, okay, I'm going to talk to every single one, try and experience, <laughs> see if I can come and see them, see see if I can get a placement going on, um, you know, see what I can do. And after the first three, which went disastrously, um, I th I thought, okay, this is what I want. I want to get a placement out of this. I want to get observership, and then things start to go well. So from that experience, I then ended up with. Uh, four or five open days where I could just meet the people and, 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 and see what they were about. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So just cold calling and then um, figuring out what you needed to ask along the way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But you know, what the, you know, what the interesting thing is that a lot of the people that I spoke to, they could sense the excitement in my voice. And there were a lot of really supportive people on the phone who said, you know, what? yeah, come in, come in, come meet us. Because they could, they could sense something in my voice, which they perhaps wanted to, to use and take advantage of and say, you know what, this person sounds like they've got good energy. Maybe they could join us somewhere along the line. They weren't thinking, oh, we're just going to show this person, you know, what's going on, uh, you know, because obviously everyone everyone has, you know, what, what they want from an interaction. They were thinking maybe this person could be useful. And I, and, and, and I made that clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. That like that high energy, let them, let them know that you were in, in, in to win. That's cool. Um, what about like, so when you, now that you, you've been practicing for a bit, what do you see kind of day to day? What kind of cases? Okay. So five years down the line, I've been a doctor for five years now, and I have a mixed bunch of things that I do mixed bag. So my staple job is in emergency medicine and acute medicine. So I like to mix it. So I'm in the emergency room or I'm doing internal medicine, acute internal medicine. That's my, that's my uh, staple job. Um, however, through the last three years, I've been mixing that with uh, being a flight physician. So a flight physician is a job whereby you take someone from A to B through the air. It could be air ambulance, it could be a jet, it could be a turboprop a propeller plane or it could be a commercial airliner so i'll i'll try and focus on that um now let me think uh, interesting situation that i had okay so one of the more exciting uh cases that i had was a vip now this was a time when i'd signed up for a week of availability so i was available the whole week for doing transfers and evacuations and, and repatriations. So after the third day of uh, three different repatriations were, which were fairly straightforward, fairly straightforward, uh, on the on our way back, so we're in the air at this point, we get a call through the radio phone. And we only get a call through the radio phone when something serious is happening or you know there's, there's an issue you know some, somewhere with air traffic control. So we had this call and then the pilot said he wants to, the medical director wants to speak to you, Daniel. I thought, what? <laughs> what? Normally, oh. they, they speak to the pilots or they speak to the uh, IC, ICU nurse. So uh, we, 
on on uh, air ambulance, there's myself, of course, the pilots, and I'm accompanied by an ICU nurse. Normally, the ICU nurses are extremely experienced, so they're very experienced with logistics and you know the the, the business side of it. And normally, they they have their feet on the ground when it when it comes to that. So I don't I don't really worry about that. But in this situation, they wanted to speak to me. So uh, the medical director said, okay, we have this case. It's a VIP. We want you to take this patient from here to there. Um, and I thought, wow, okay. Um, what are the what are the medical? Uh, what's the medical situation? I always ask that. That's the, that's the most important situation. What's the medical situation and can I deal with it? If the medical director is speaking to me, then he probably thinks that I can deal with it. But again, I always like to feel confident in, in, in the situation. So he told me the situation. There were, this patient had just uh, had a surgery about 15 days ago, was stable and uh, need to be repatriated back to the UK. I thought, great. Sounds good. Sounds good. Let's do it. So we had a night's rest. Um, we were we were coming home. So yeah, I just went home. We had a night's rest, and then next day we went out again. This the trip was to northern Spain, and uh, we landed. And there were a lot of logistics, a lot of logistics to think about with this um, mission because again, it's not just about the patient. It's about Again, the aircraft, it's about the timings, it's about where you're going, it's about the hospital that you're going to, it's about the equipment that you need, it's about the, the medications that you need, it's about the pilots, because pilots need to get their rest. Again, again we, we, we were traveling for, for four days on the trot, you know, doing different, uh, again, it's about our fatigue as well, I'll be too tired. So there's so many things to think about. And this situation, uh, this guy had, um, he had surgery and he was being driven to where we were, the airport, and it was going to be a tarmac transfer. So a tarmac transfer is when you're transferred, not in a hospital, but on the tarmac on at the airport. So that means that you need to do your pre-flight assessment and sign off that patient to be fit to fly at the airport on the tarmac, which is obviously carries a lot more risk. Because when you're in a hospital, you can look at all the investigations, you could talk to the doctors, you could talk to the nurses, you know, every, everything's there. And to add pressure on top of that, the airport was going to close at, I think it must have been eight o'clock. And this patient hadn't actually arrived by the time we got there. And I think it must have been seven o'clock. So time was running out. And anyway, it got to quarter to eight. And then I see this ambulance on the horizon coming, bringing this patient. I thought, okay, that's us. Yes, that's us. <laughs> so I go and see this patient and I'm thinking, whoa, like I said, this patient was a VIP. This patient was a famous person. And I recognized, I recognized who this person was. Uh, again, that, that was, yeah, that was something I had to calm myself about because of course that carries another sort of pressure. Um, and there's, there's a, uh, a get out clause, which, which all flight physicians have, which is to say that this patient is not fit to fly. I don't, I don't want to take that risk because this patient unstable. We, the worst thing that, that can happen is, of course, someone to die mid-flight or for you to have to divert, which is a real mixed bag of problems. You know, if you think about, you know, the size of the aircraft or if it's a big commercial airliner with other people on it and how you have to organize getting down. And then once you get down, you need to find a pla another place of safety. Again, so it depends where you go. Imagine if you divert and then you're on the ground and then there's no hospital for miles. What was the point of diverting? Well, there was no point doing that. Mm, so, yeah. so so, all these things are in my mind. Anyway, so it's my time to do my pre-flight assessment. 
my pre-flight assessment involves just a normal examination, looking at all the systems, looking at all the uh, bags, all the drains that are attached, making sure everything's flowing nicely. So I then realized that he's sweating in front of me and his temperature is a little bit high. And given what he's been through, I'm thinking, there's one thing I'm thinking is sepsis. I don't want this guy to go into septic shock. Normally, at my stage, I'm able to take patients with, you know, within my competency who are stable but have a few issues going on. Okay, now this guy, he was definitely stable, but one of the huge skills of this job is thinking about what could happen, having a plan B, having a plan C, having a plan D, and for all those plans, thinking, okay, what do I need to do if that happens? Okay, so that was my that was my thing that I was thinking about. So I gathered all the information. I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm really not sure. So I talked to the medical director. I say, this is a situation. I think I think he's okay right now, but he, he might go into septic shock later on. He might, he might, he might go into full-blown sepsis. And this is my plan. Do I think we can fly him? I'm not sure. I want to know what you think about this. And then we, you know, we, we, we just we just bashed our heads together and we said, you know what, he can fly if we do A, B, and C. And that A, B, and C was, of course, start sepsis six treatment. Um, of course, get more information, do a history. Um, his uh, his wife was there, so she was able to to be really, really helpful to um, help us figure out what was going on. So we started treatment, and we flew a a sea level uh, cabin, a sea level cabin pressure, which is where you change the configuration, the engineering of the aircraft to make the ambient environment more 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 to improve the, the ambient environment for biological processes. Okay, now that's that's quite a deep <clears throat> concept to understand, but Essentially, when you go up, there's less oxygen, there's less air in a, in a given space. So if you pressurize the cabin to a higher degree, there's more oxygen in a given space. Therefore, that's going to affect the body uh, less. That's going to affect the body less and, and allow, um, allow the patient to, to, to be better, to, to get better, to not suffer from certain things. The, the six factors to think about when you're flying are... Uh, a hyperbaric environment, so the pressurization, humidity, uh, temperature, acceleration and deceleration, vibration, and noise. There's a few other ones like radiation, but, but those are the main ones. And for every patient you take, you need to think about all those things and how it's going to affect the physiology. So we we were creating a situation where we were getting on top of all of those things and making sure that our patient could get from A to B. So we started giving the treatment. Uh, we were flying a C level sea level uh, cabin pressure and uh, in in the cabin uh, about an hour into the flight he started vomiting and in my experience vomiting is not is not a, a good sign it really you know to me vomiting in a patient like that is a sign that they're going to autonomic uh, you know distress I mean that's the that's the worst thing that it can mean so I always I always the way and go down from there so again we you know we hit him with uh, fluids and antiemetics and some other things um, to help us you know uh, to, to make him better and uh, we also have a lot of tech within within our, our, our pack and our luggage and uh, the cabin. So we actually have something called the iStat. And iStat is a, a portable uh, blood analyzer. So it's like this little cool thing from the future where you take a little drop of blood, you put it into the machine, you, you shake it a little bit, you tap a few things, and then it gives you all the numbers. And this happens within like 10 minutes. So we do, we do that while we're flying. And then it tells us that actually this guy's getting better. So all our efforts, they're, they're actually making a good difference, right? Making mm. a big difference. So we hit the halfway point. We're over Portugal at this point, 
Um, and I think we're over Portugal, perhaps. So maybe we're somewhere, somewhere else. But we're over somewhere, and we say, okay, we need to land because of the sea level uh, cabin pressure, because it puts more strain on the engine, use more fuel. So we had to land. So we landed. We did a quick check. We did you know, uh, a few bits and bobs. We refueled, and then we got back in the air again, and this guy was starting to get better. We landed back in uh, the UK, and uh, we I, I dropped him off dropped him off at the hospital, and he looked at me, and I think at this point he was probably a little bit delirious. So I'm not sure if he meant this or not, but he said, "Daniel, I love you. Thank you so much for doing this." And whether he was <laughs> whether he was delirious or not, he could see the stress that I was I was under, and I was putting myself through, and that the job entailed, and he appreciated it, and. That feeling, that feeling will always be with me. And every time I have a situation like that, that feeling never goes, and it makes it very, very worth it. Mm. I can only imagine. Yeah, that's really, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> Daniel, I love you. That's awesome. You're like, oh, I love you too, man. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, that's a sweet story. I can, I can, I, I was like picturing myself in the helicopter, like in the in the aircraft with you, just like kind of dealing with the stress and dealing with. That's awesome. I mean, and that's kind of like a just day to day for you. That's pretty sweet. No wonder you wanted to get into that. Yeah, for sure. Let me tell you another. One. Let me tell you another one. So we we had a. Uh, commercial uh, repatriation. So commercial repatriation is where we take a, a commercial airliner which is already scheduled and we take a patient who's going back home. So normally they're supposed to be very stable. They'll be very stable because of course you don't have all the kit that you do in um, an air ambulance which is a, you know, a, sort of a private jet. So this patient was patient in Greece and all I knew was that there was a traumatic chest drain. So they had a chest drain. And chest drains I'm, I'm quite comfortable with. I could put them in, I can deal with them, and I have to keep them nice, um, and it was all good. But again, aside from the medical issues and the logistical issues, there's a human side, which is actually very huge, which is really huge. You're that patient's confidant, you're that patient's you know, advocate the whole way through, and you're with them for up to 20 hours, just you and them, and, and perhaps you know one of their, one of their companions. So you, you, the relationship that you build is very, very strong. So I walk in, in Greece, uh, this, the, to this hospital, and uh, I find out this the patient. She must have been uh, uh, 23 years old. I found out that she's a medical student, and her mom, who's with her, she's a pediatrician. So oh I, wow! I, find, I found I find out that all on the spot, and I'm thinking, wow. And of course, you have this you have this anxiety that your peers are watching you and judging everything that you do. <laughs> And and that definitely kicked in. That that for sure kicked in. And it was funny because their English wasn't too good, and and my uh, Portuguese uh, isn't very good. So there was a very big language barrier. But we used you know Google Translate and all those things. But I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> what do they think? Because I understand that in certain places, in certain countries, uh, like like the U.S., it's very odd to see uh, such, a, such a young a young doctor so um, I often um, I'm, I'm a bit I'm a bit self-conscious maybe I don't need to be but it's one of the things I'm self-conscious about that uh, often people think that I'm too young to, to, to be doing what I'm doing or they query my experience before they've actually let me do my work and I remember thinking that and I remember looking at them when I first walked in and them looking at each other <laughs> a little bit like, uh. <laughs> and, and I always, I always look back at it. It's kind, of, it's kind of a funny thing, really. I mean, all my, all my uh, missions that I've done have ended extremely well. 
um, but it, it's, it's always a thing you need to go through anyway. We get halfway around the world and we're in Brazil, so we're almost there. The journey's been great. Uh, she's not been in pain. I've given her a medication. She's had no complications. The, the chest drain, you know, everything is going very, very well. Everything is good. And then we're just about to get on another uh, plane to go to, yeah, again, somewhere else in uh, Brazil. And as we get on, the pilot comes out to where we're sitting and, and says something in Portuguese. <laughs> I'm like, uh, no comprende. <laughs> don't understand yeah <laughs> i don't understand what you're saying and then someone else comes in and the the, the family they can speak a little bit of english so they say they're asking us to get off the plane this is 1 a.m in brazil when uh in a place that i, I really don't know much about and they're asking us to, to they're kicking us off the plane because the some sort of uh paperwork isn't right and uh at this point i'm i'm Starting to panic, but trying to trying to keep cool. So I said, can, can I chat to you? So we go to the cockpit, and there's someone who can speak English there. So I'm explaining, we have all the paperwork, we have this, we have that. The patient's stable, there's none to worry about. I'm a doctor, I'm a fully qualified doctor, British qualified doctor, and everything's here. And they said, sorry, uh, they didn't want to take the risk. So they kicked us off the plane. This is 1 a.m. in a country that I can't speak the language in. We're just there hmm. in, 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 the, in the terminal. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Um, I start making my phone calls, and then of course the patient and the family—they're they're super upset. They're super upset, and you know, actually in, in tears, quite quite distraught as as they would be. They just want to go home, you know. And only thing that I've got in my mind is this drain, this chest drain. <laughs> like, be up, be upset. Of course, you need to be upset. This is a situation, but look, look after that chest drain, please. <laughs> I was just yeah, trying to calm it down. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was just trying to keep her cool, you know. Uh, we've come a long way, and I don't want any medical issues. That's my concern. Okay. Um, fortunately, I managed to calm her down, and uh, I call a few people to get some logistics sorted out. And they say, okay, you're going to be in uh, this city, this Brazilian city, for uh, a another day, and then you're going to fly tomorrow. I said, great, no problem, no problem. So I settle them. I, I do my my medical uh, job, making sure that she's okay. Do do some vitals, give her medication. She's in quite a lot of pain, so you know I, I titrate it to what she needs, and 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 that's it. And we were actually leaving the next day, so I had a whole day. I had a whole day in Brazil to uh, check out the city we, we in uh, Sao Paulo. So I said, great, and and fortunately she was. Uh, well enough to be looked after by her mom in, in the room. And I was, I just went around the city for a few hours, which was great. I was in Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was no, it was no carnival. I'll tell you that much, but, but it was <laughs> nice. It was nice to be in a, in a, in a cool place. And, um, Again, the next day, uh, we, we we went, we took the flight and everything was, uh, nice and, and, and dandy and we got home and, um, it was good. But again, it just emphasizes the point that it's not just the medical issues that, that you need to deal with. It's, it's a whole other thing. And and you need to really focus on your problem-solving skills. And again, drawing back to our first point, as a doctor, it's about problem-solving skills. Thinking on your feet. Think about what you do have. Think about what you need. And think about what endpoint, where you're trying to go. Like What are you trying to do in this situation? I think that's really important for for people to understand what are you trying to do what do you want yeah absolutely that's sweet <laughs> that's really that's really cool you got a free uh free trip to sao paulo out of that that's pretty awesome mm -hmm. i know you said you kind of have a time crunch so i wanted to i have yeah. the wrap wanted to ask you the wrap-up questions now and then if we have time i can ask you some of the other questions but i definitely want to do the wrap-up questions 
So we'll, we'll do those real quick. And then if we have time, we can. I have some other ones. But if not, totally fine. Sounds good. All right, perfect. So the first question I have for you is, has practicing medicine been what you expected? No, no. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to expect um, being being a doctor was was like of course i went through medical school pretty straightforwardly um you know there were no issues i just i just kind of went kind of sailed through most of the time um has it been what i expected no no because because the the difficulties weren't about the the intellectual part of being a doctor which normally you think oh you need to be really really smart for it they're not really the the difficult part isn't about you know, the, the the intellectual struggle or studying or exams or things. I don't think that's the difficult part. I think the difficult part is 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 mixing it with your life and, and, and trying to stay above the water as a human, stay trying to stay balanced if if that's a thing. So it's not it's not what I expected. Okay. All. Okay. Got you, got you. And then the second question is, in your opinion, what are keys to success in medicine? What are the keys to success? Okay, that's a, how to get the best out of medicine and how to have a, a good career, a good fulfilling career. I think you need to speak to people. You need to speak to the people that have gone before you so that you can try your best to avoid the mistakes that they've made. Keep speaking to people. That's the best thing that I've done throughout my whole career. I, I speak to everybody. You know, I'm not afraid of saying hello to anybody. And I listen. I listen to everyone's advice, whether it's right or wrong. I listen to everybody's advice and I use that to make my own decision. I think that's hugely important. Some people say, oh, I don't want to listen to him. I don't listen to her because <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But l listening doesn't mean you agree. And listening, even if even if you don't agree, doesn't mean you need to argue. It's just you understand where people are coming from. You understand their story. And then you can use that to make your own decision. So again, that's, that's another piece of advice that I would give. And I would say also that medical students, doctors, they shouldn't be secretive. There's so many doctors and, and, and medical students who are secretive and you know try to scheme and think that everyone is against each other. Now that is not the mindset you, you want to have. You want to have an abundance mindset, a mindset where you think everybody can win. I'm going to win because I work hard and I deserve to win and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to win. But everybody can win if, 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 if everyone works hard, if everybody deserves to win, everybody can win. And when you help other people, other people help you and it goes around in a circle. And, and I know it sounds abstract, but I think it's so true. And, and I stand to, to, to manifest that, to be honest. Um, so don't be secretive. The other thing I would say is work smart. I think if I could go back to the beginning of medical school and think, okay, what do I need to do to get what I want? I would think, okay, first of all, what do I want? What do I want? You need to think, what do you, some people, some people, they, they, they don't want to struggle and, and, and do exam upon exam and they want their life to look a certain way. If, if that's, if that's you, then understand that it's you and say, okay, how am I going to get the life that I want to live? How, how am I going to be the doctor that I want to be? You know, and if you want to struggle and you want to reach the top and you want to sweat and you want to have that life, then understand that, accept it and say, okay, that's where I'm going to go. So I think it's about working smart. Working smart, you figure out what exactly you want and you figure out a route to get there. And then once you're on that route, once you're on that route, you stay consistent. And if something changes, like your attitude or your opinion or what you want in the end, what you want in the end, then then you evaluate and then you act. 
and then you you do this again and again. You, you evaluate, and then you act, and you choose, and you look at your options, and you keep on going to wherever your situation is. I think that's hugely important, and that's the advice that I would give to people coming up. Absolutely, that's awesome. So that kind of answers the third question, which was, you know, any advice to those coming up. So that, that kind of knocks out both of them. So that's awesome, and you know, really, really good point. I mean, it's you have to adapt, and you have to when you make that adaptation, you still have to keep going. You can't just give up. So absolutely. Yep. And the last question is, if you woke up tomorrow and you were 10 years old and you you knew what you knew now and you had to do it all over again to get back to where you are today as a doctor, would you do it all over again? Yes, fully, 100%. Yes, I would do it, 100%. The, the only caveat to that is that I would say, I hope I would be given the chance to do it better with more intentional, in, 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 intentional intentionality. Is that a thing? Is that a word? I'm not sure. It sounds good, though. <laughs> intentionality. <laughs> intentionality. Yeah, you know, I would be more intentional because I've I've stumbled across my way, you, you know, finding what I want. And I haven't actually thought uh, previously. I didn't actually think, OK, what do I actually want out of this? I just kind of found my, my own way. But so I would I would waste a lot less time and think about what I need to do to, to get where I need to, to, to go. Also, I would learn to cut my own hair. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I would, I would learn to cut my own hair instead of having to waste the time going to the barber all the time. I think that's a really, really important skill, actually, um, and which could, which could uh, make people a lot more efficient doing whatever they're doing. And and also, I would uh, read a lot more books. Recently, over the last few years since becoming a doctor, I've been reading a lot, listening to a lot of audio books, and that information that I've consumed has really changed my life. It's been pivotal. In, in, in how I've approached things. So uh, reading and consuming information that's available, um, I do that in, 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 a, in a much uh, more uh, consistent way and more intentional way than before. That's awesome. That's sweet. Yeah, that's that's great. That's another thing I totally agree with. If I could go back, it would just be learn more, like just pay attention to the things around me more. I've always been attentive, but you can always do better. So just take in as much as I can. That's a that's a good point. And that's kind of my goal moving forward is just, you know, taking what I can. It's all, it's the only life I get, so I got to learn what I can while I'm here. That's it. That's it. Consume knowledge, consume, learn. Knowledge is power. Learn as much as possible. Learn. The 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 fastest learners and the most key most key, you know, ear to the ground learners. Those are the people who are going to do successful because they know when to change and to pivot. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, uh I know you were kind of this is Coming towards the end of your time, are you set? Yeah, are you, let's do more. Let's do more. Let's do more. Do more. All right, cool. So the second half is just like just about you outside of healthcare, anyway. So the first question I wanted to ask was: I saw on your page you and your brother did the Carolina Reaper challenge. How'd that go? <laughs> yeah. So um, for anybody that doesn't know what the Carolina Reaper challenge is, that's the hottest chili in the world. So uh, that chili is something like 250,000 times uh, more, more uh, spicy than the, your average pepper, uh, which is obviously quite spicy. So it's been known to, to, to kill people through <laughs> anaphylactic reaction. Fortunately, um, we, we had an EpiPen ready uh, when we did that. And actually, he did the challenge, not me. And I was, uh, it was an experiment to see if twins could feel each other's pain and have that telepathic uh, thing going on. Um, and then I was explaining the science as well. So witnessing him uh, do that challenge and being in agony from it, I think twins do have some sort of telepathy going on because I felt <laughs> it. I, I really, really did. 
Um, but uh, what what I saw him go through was 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 really a lot. You know, immediately, um, you know, his his eyes went red. His his he started watering through his mouth and his nose. His temperature went up. So we're measuring his heart rate and his temperature. His blood pressure went up. So there was some real physiological changes that were going on. And he would say that it would get worse and worse and worse and more intense and more intense. And it wasn't like he could taste anything. It was it was just like pain on his tongue. It was just pain, but a pain where you can't do anything about it. That 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 pain is so scary, the way he described it. It's a pain that you cannot do anything about, and it's getting more intense and more intense. It's not like heat. It's like pure pain. Nothing mm. else, just pain. <laughs> and it's like it's just like seared into your tongue. Like every sensor is just saturated, and it's just bound, and it's not going anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no milk, no water, nothing's gonna help that and so just just pure time. And <laughs> you're just gonna suffer. That sounds that sounds awful. Exactly. Unfortunately we did have some milk, but he was trying to be a macho man. He he tried not to have the milk for uh one in fact no, it was a few minutes. Yeah, it was a few minutes. I think the record of not having milk is something like ten minutes. Um and yeah, he, he lasted a few minutes but then he just gave up. Yeah, yeah. The fact that the record is 10 minutes means that after 10 minutes, that guy was still in so much pain <laughs> that he needed it. That's terrible. That's terrible. So, But that sounds like a pretty cool project. Like you guys just, you know, do it, take the Reaper challenge, but do it medically, not uh, just like in your backyard. So that's for a good cause. That's pretty cool. That That's the thing. That's the thing. I, I think there's so many different cool things that most people and lay people can understand that you can relate back to medicine and then get people so interested in medicine and physiology looking after their bodies and that's the key taking something so extreme so scientific so minute and relating it to everybody so everyone can take something from it yeah absolutely and then what about your o-twins youtube channel what, what made you guys start that together hey hey thanks thanks for thanks for reminding me about that yeah um our catchphrase is Oh, twins. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, so again, you know, we, we thought, you know, during this COVID time, let's think about the projects that we, we wanted to get down and, and really do and be creative. Um, this is a really good time to think outside the box and, you know, to just really f f fulfill your, your, your more creative dreams as, as, as doctors. Um, so we said, you know what, we're going to create a YouTube channel where we look at evidence. We're doctors, we like to look at evidence. We like to have evidence-based practice, evidence-based discussions. So we're gonna be looking at from things to diet, to things like training, and things like, you know, evidence which supports them and just uh, discuss and, and debate and argue those things. And we have different opinions on quite a lot of things. So it'll be interesting to, 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 to clash. So we have what's coming up, uh, one where I have a chicken diet for a week. He has a fish diet. So we, we compare how, how it affects us from, from everything to how we feel, to our sleep, to, you know, digestion and things like that, to training. That's gonna be interesting. We're comparing Apple versus Android again our experiences with that um and yeah we, we've got a bunch of things uh coming up and of course it's it's supposed to be fun and entertaining and, and uh the feedback so far is, is that it is yeah that sounds sweet that sounds pretty cool um if you ever need a challenger or a, you know anything across the sea let me know i can i can help out <laughs> <laughs> okay okay yeah okay. definitely that sounds if, sweet if you, if, so. you can, if you can get yourself a teammate we can do a two-on-two -two. we can do a tag team <laughs> oh i can definitely do that i can definitely do that or at best, I'll just use oh, my dog. I'll, I'll use my dog, and she can be my teammate. So yeah, <laughs> so that would be sweet. Yeah, that sounds cool. We'll, we'll make it happen. So another question is, what about one of my favorite questions to ask everyone is, what did you get in trouble for as a kid? Wow! Wow! wow. <laughs> it's just a fun question. I love it. Well, okay. Ooh. <laughs> okay, we're 
We're uncovering some skeletons in the closet now. <laughs> okay. So so uh, in in school in school one of the more funny things that I got in trouble for was <laughs> so we had this teacher who was super fun and he had this lunchtime club called TLC where uh, essentially it was you know just to talk and listen care about problems and things like that and uh, it was really insightful actually because that was before mental health was really a, a, a big thing uh, in society um, so uh, yeah we used to do that and I was really keen on coming to it and sharing my experiences and being really keen and, and excited and uh, it was fish and chips day at lunch so um, I was pretty late for the the, the session at lunchtime because that was when the club was so I thought you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna smuggle uh, my uh, fish and, and and go there uh, somehow and eat the fish at the lunchtime at the at the session right so <laughs> I got there and um, I'm just sat at the back somewhere and because the form tutor because he was super keen he knew I was super keen he said come sit at the front so sat at the front I was I was chatting away and I was presenting and then it was my turn to speak finished so I pulled out this fish and started eating it and I thought you know what if I'm going to eat it, I need to be confident uh, you know if, if people are going to look at me I'm going to be confident <laughs> I'm going to eat it I'm, I'm, I'm going to enjoy this fish so I started eating it <laughs> and then and then he looked at me and he was like Daniel is that a fried fish that you're eating <laughs> I said yes my lunch I didn't have enough time to, to eat lunch and uh, it was just this hilarious moment where everyone was laughing and uh, then he was like, Dan, you know, come on, like, we're cool, but you, you can't, you can't be doing that. So <laughs> I, had, I had a little detention. I think it was more of a, more of a thing to say, Dan. Okay, we're cool, but you can't get away with that. Like, that's, that's not on. Yeah. Like that. So, <laughs> so that was that. Um, brought a fish into a lunchtime session um, when we were discussing. That's it. pretty funny. <laughs> you know, that's pretty funny. And I don't know what it is about like little boys, like when we're when we're young and food because it's just like a fun thing to get in trouble for like when i was in <laughs> when i was i was like in like seventh grade maybe and like me and like five of my friends we all would just we had this one teacher who was like really he wouldn't let us eat in class and so we were like all right well that sucks so what we did what we did instead was we took all our leftover food for weeks and we would put it in this drawer in his room wow. and and so like i mean for weeks and weeks and after like a couple of weeks you know the, the room started to smell and he's like what is going on? <laughs> he's like, why does this, why does this room smell? And he opened, he finally went on like a search because it just smelled unbearable. And he opened this drawer, and it had been, you know, several weeks of us doing like five oh. or six of us doing that. And he got so mad. We never, we never got caught because we never, we didn't, we didn't tell on ourselves. Luckily, but um, I, I, I feel bad now. Looking, I'm older now, but as a kid, I thought it was just so funny. I, <laughs> but, I, I, I love that. I love that. Yeah, okay, one more, one more. So, so uh, I went to all boys school. So all boys school. You know, is what it is you know we, we like to get in trouble we like to fight we, all, all this stuff is part of growing up right and uh one guy he had this idea that we play pea shooter where you get these straws and you you create like tissue paper and you make like spitballs um and and uh you just you just fire them against each other and uh we did we did that and there were two there were two groups there were two teams um there was no way of winning really it was just you just keep going until you stop but then <laughs> yeah. that then evolved that then evolved to where you'd get a piece of paper, you'd fold it many times, and you'd put it on an elastic band, and you would fire it. So that evolved into that situation where there were two groups, 
each side of the the classroom and we would, it would just be mayhem and we'll just be firing at each other like abusing each other and and this stuff it, it, it got quite heated actually and uh yeah pe- people got hurt i think it must have gone in one person's eye actually that was quite bad actually that, that, yeah that was the, don't try this at home um but looking back it, it's kind of funny um and we <laughs> we all had detention because of it and uh yeah it's just, just one of those things yeah, it's like little when you, especially at a at an all boys school. I can only imagine it's just you have young boys just they're just getting into trouble. That's what we do, you know. It's just exactly. Fun. It's just, exactly. We're gonna we're gonna find ways to get in trouble that like they're gonna make like I remember my school started making new rules because of my middle school class just because we did all this stuff that wasn't not allowed at the time that they now just like don't allow just you know just like no i I mean it was like ridiculous like we did the same thing with the food throughout different lockers throughout the campus so like all of a sudden you know after like a month you know just stuff like that like anyone found putting food in lockers will be in trouble and stuff like that so so the whole school was stinking then the whole the whole school oh yeah by the time it was like two months went by there's probably 10 lockers that had just like piles and piles of food in them people would people wouldn't even eat their lunch they would just dump it in the locker and then it would just wow like, <laughs> stink just, school it was it was bad it was, it was bad. stink school supreme yeah exactly stink school for sure and, <laughs> and it, like you find one locker and then there's three more brewing so it's just it was it, it got bad i felt bad looking back on it i feel bad but it was fun at the time I love that. I love that. Yeah, that's harmless. You know, we weren't doing anything like crazy. It was just stupid stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's good. What about sports wise? Do you play any sports nowadays, or kind of what do you do for fitness? Yeah, yeah. So uh, in school, um, I played uh, rugby. So that was always that was always good fun. Ah, uh, sweet. That was our school sport, and I always wanted to get into basketball. But unfortunately, in our school, it wasn't really a, a sport we we focused on. Um, but it was only in medical school that we uh, that I started focusing on it, and I wanted to get better. and And we didn't have a team, so I started a team. We were called Peninsula Panthers, so that that was pretty fun. And again, I didn't have that uh, high school uh, basketball education, so I was kind of started from the but the from the bottom. And but I loved it. I love basketball. And my twin brother, he started a basketball team for his medical school. And then we had this tournament. We had this tournament where we had, you know, this really these these two really amateur amateur teams, you know, meeting up. And you know, made up of you know a mix of girls and boys who just wanted to play basketball, who weren't very good. <laughs> and the the last game was uh, my team versus my twins team. And there was one point in it, and he got it in the end. But uh, I, so he was, I was last, and he was second last in the tournament. Wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, and it was <laughs> like uh, that really shows the passion. You just you guys just wanted to play, you know. <laughs> yup, yup, yup. Yep. So so now now I, I still play basketball. I, I think I'm I'm a, I'm a lot better now, and and I enjoy basketball. But I think for, <laughs> for, <laughs> I think for for fitness, um, I think I'm a I'm a gym guy. I really like the gym. I, I like running. I like keeping fit. And I think, you know, going to the gym is, is a good, measured, efficient way of keeping your, your, your fitness up. So, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that. And a few years ago, when I was in medical school, I got really deep into uh, bodybuilding and, you know, performance in the gym and that whole um, the, the fitness lifestyle. So I had a, had a really good time doing that. So now, now I just keep it up. Now I just keep it up. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, are the gyms open back up yet over there? No, no, it's annoying. No, no gym. So no, no heavy weight, unfortunately. 
um, but I'm, I've got some weights here at home, so I'm doing some good workouts, doing some good running, and uh, you know, trying to get creative with, with my workouts, calisthenics and all that. Yeah, yeah, it's tough, man. It's it sucks too because when I was in Florida, I was in Florida for medical school, and I just left, you know, a few months ago. And the gyms are already open back in Florida, but they're not going to be open for a while where I am in North Carolina. So I'm just doing my running, doing my push-ups, pull-ups. You know, like I have a um, I have a couple machines and stuff in my apartment, so it's cool. But nice. I need the nice. gym, man. I need like a barbell. That's like my jam is just like the barbell. So that's the thing. You you can't replace heavy resistance training can you you, you can't re- you can't replace the way it makes you feel the testosterone that releases the hormones that that pump you you can't replace it no like a, a good run is not is not the same as like a good lift i, I love a good lift way better so yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be in, ready in medical for- school we had, <laughs> we actually had a a gym in our house so you know when you say gym in your house you think you know a few a few uh, dumbbells but in the living room we converted the living room into a full gym so we had a squat rack um, and bench press, full frame in the living room. No TV, no couches, just full gym. We had a huge, big uh, sound system which blasted the walls. And every <laughs> evening when we came when we came home, it would just be heavy, you know, thick, you know, sweaty weight training, squats, deadlifts, you know, all all that good stuff, all oh, that yeah. real, real <laughs> good stuff in the living room. I like that. Yep. 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 That's, that sounds dope to me, man. I like. I'm with that. If I could, if I could get a squat rack, if I could, if if a place would actually sell me one, I would, I would do that here too. If I could, man. <laughs> you could get them on Amazon, man. Everywhere is sold out. Every time I check, they're like, "Oh, we don't ship. We're not selling right now." I'm like, man. Oh, oh, snap! Yeah, it must be sold out. Yeah, of course. I need to figure that out because all the even like Walmart everywhere is just like completely sold out. Rogue is sold out, so That's I gotta wait for this. I have a pull-up bar. I have a. Uh, do you know what a, an assault air bike is? You know what those are? Yes, yeah, yeah they, they're I cool. One. They're really trendy right now. Oh my god, they're terrible. Like in a good way. They're so exhausting though. But yeah. 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 So I bang out a lot of workouts with that and I have a couple of dumbbells, but that's it. And I need like a rack and a barbell and I'll be set. Sure. How heavy are the dumbbells? I have a twenty and a forty. What? KG? Uh pounds. <laughs> pounds. Pounds. Oh that's you have a you have a forty forty dumbbell. Like uh so so twenty KG dumbbell approximately. Yes. That's, okay, that's pretty good. You yeah, you could do some you could do some damage with that. Yeah, I've been trying, man. I've been doing my best. So, and I have a like yeah. a I have a weighted vest. It's twenty pounds. So I do like all my pull ups, push ups, runs, everything in the vest too. So, hey, you're getting your workout done. Okay, you're getting your yeah, workout man. done. Okay, when I yeah, come man. to the USA, we're gonna, we're gonna have to throw it down. We're gonna have to throw oh, it down. Absolutely, man. If you come, <laughs> I have the barbells ready. Our living room would be stocked stocked up by then. So you know, it'd be set. Okay, bet. Okay, bet. I'm gonna yeah. go through. Okay, bet. After this coronavirus is done. Oh yeah. Through. I'm coming out your way too, then, man. We'll get a good workout in, and I'll, I'll play for your basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need, we need some of that USA hustle. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. You know, Kobe's bred in us, man. So I got you. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, man. So I got you. That'd be cool, man. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's it. That's all the questions I had. Um, anything else you wanted to talk about or ask me or anything? Um, which state are you in? I'm in North Carolina right now. North Carolina. Okay, is that near Texas? Let's see. I'm. A, that's probably about. Ooh, probably like a five-hour flight from me. Four-hour flight. Okay. Okay, but it's on the southern coast, no? Uh, I'm on this. I'm on the east coast, and Texas is kind of like south middle. 
Okay, okay, fine. Excuse my uh, poor, poor geography. Oh no, I'm terrible too. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm super serious about um, doing a, a few more bits in in the USA. So, uh, linking up if if I come through it would be would be great. So, we we'll definitely keep that on the watch. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I wanted to mention um, a project that I'm working on called the Afro Health Initiative. Um, again. Uh, Africa and, and healthcare in Africa is something I'm, I'm very passionate about and I'm trying to achieve with everything that I'm doing. And uh, at a hackathon that I uh, went to, I competed at where we came runners up, uh, my team said, you know what, you know, we, we've presented an idea which nearly won this hackathon. We want to give the opportunity for more people who are passionate about healthcare in Africa making a difference. You know, we want to give them an opportunity. So what we did is we made a organization called the Afro Health Initiative. And what this is, is a online platform where people in any country who are interested in reinvesting human resource and their professional skills to the healthcare economy of Africa can do so. So we're linking up corporate partners, we're linking up people who have professional skills they wanna they wanna give. We're having a, a crowdfunding platform on it. And above all, it's supposed to be a social networking sort of LinkedIn for African healthcare, which we think is hugely important because there's lots of people that wanna do stuff, but they don't know how to do it and they don't have a place to do it. So that's us, Afro right. Health Initiative. Find us on Instagram, please. Afro Health Initiative. Let me write that down so I can make sure I put it in the episode notes too. Yes, please. All right, sweet. Absolutely, man. That's great. That sounds like a sweet pro. And like you said, people are always willing to help. It's just, how do I do it? So that's cool. That's that's a great move. That's the thing. That's the thing. Awesome, man. That's beautiful. Well, yeah, I, absolutely. I'll make sure I put that in the notes and you know give it a shout out. I have a question for you also. So when when people talk about when people talk about African healthcare. Um, and uh, connecting with Africa and roots. Um, how does how does that like w w what does that mean for you? Be because the reason I say this is because I was born in the UK. Um, as you were born in America, right? Yes. Yeah. And a lot of discussion that I've had with blacks in America is that I, I feel that they try and disassociate themselves away from Africa. And I, I don't I don't understand that. I don't understand this. I want to I want to know what you think. Oh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. So I don't I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but myself personally, I don't disassociate with my African heritage. It's just I don't know mine specifically. So, you know, yours is Nigerian, you know, whereas mine, yeah. I have no idea uh, because of obviously what happened. And, you know, we were stripped of identities and things like that. But I definitely would love to know. I, I just don't know exactly what my particular African heritage is. I think because of that, I kind of, so my father's side is Hispanic. Um, and I, I kind of tend to lean in on that heritage because I can at least, I can identify it. I can say, you know, my grandmother's from Mexico. I can identify, you know, this, you know, this is a heritage I can touch. Whereas I can't say that, I can't say, you know, obviously you know how people miss miss um, misspeak and say the country of africa they don't even some people get that wrong and, and so i can't say I, I so i identify my african heritage it's just i can't identify it specifically so i would never try to distance myself from it it's just um it's just nothing i can i can't palpate it you know so it's it's tough to really I grasp see. it yeah no I, yeah i get that that's yeah that's that makes it a lot clearer for me. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I get that. It's an interesting one. It, it, it really, really is, um, because I, I've been, I've been conflicted ab ab about that particular um, notion that 
I mean, that to understand and to, to think that. And, you know, there were papers written, uh, there were documents written probably in like the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Marcus Garvey, but they were kind of talking about the identity crisis of, of black people in America because, you know, like I said, we were, we were stripped of our identities. We don't know what tribes or what country within Africa we were even brought from. So it, there is a bit of an identity crisis. And there might be people who just want to say, I'm American, nothing else. But I think, you know, I personally love my own, my own heritage, all of it. And so I, I, I like to lean in on it when I, when I can and what I know about it. It's just, it's unfortunate that I don't know specifically. I would love to be able to say that I have, you know, this particular country in Africa heritage, but I don't. So I, all I can do is lean on the, the continent as a whole. I get that. Have you been to Africa before? I have not. So it's on my travel list. The only place out of the country I've been is Mexico and in the Caribbean. So I have a, a lot to make up for. Okay, okay. Well, my recommendations for Africa are Ghana, South Africa, and Kenya. Those places you can have a great time. Those places you can have a real, real good time. And I really recommend all any any person of color, any 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 person in America, to real really try and understand and go and have a great time in Africa because you will, and it will open your eyes to a whole new place you, you never knew existed. Absolutely. I mean, I would love to. And um, what about Nigeria? Nigeria. So uh, I've, I've been there. I tend to go there more and to do more work there. However, I think there's a, um, a balance you need to get. You need to have a balance with tourism and having a good time, having pure fun, the same fun that you would have if I went to New York, you know, just seeing things and like the infrastructure is very good for tourism. And at the same time, safety. Now, I'm not going to say Nigeria is unsafe. I don't think it is unsafe, but the 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 balance between tourism and having a good time and safety isn't optimal. However, if you go to somewhere like Kenya, it's great. The infrastructure for tourism is great. It's safe. You know, it's multicultural. Everyone's speaking English. No one's going to try and con you. Um, I mean, you can go anywhere and something bad can happen. So no, nowhere's perfect. But Nigeria, um, although I love it, that's where I'm from, um, I embrace the whole of Africa. And I wouldn't say Nigeria is quite ready for mass tourism for because of the situation mm, okay good to know good to know but still those recommendations are solid and yeah once i get the time and once i get my money up i'll definitely be making some trips so that'll be great there we, there we go there we go come on yeah absolutely i gotta gotta get on that so um yeah that's absolutely that's on the plan on the plan so well dr uh dr Olaya. God, I cannot get that. Olaya, I appreciate your time so much. And, you know, thank That's you so much for being man. a guest. Yeah, it's been absolutely an, an absolute pleasure. I appreciate your time and your insight and the story. So thank you. Th thank you very much. Like you, you guys, you, you're doing you, you're, you're doing a great job. Thank you for reaching out and I uh, wish you the best. And let's keep in contact. I'm, 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 I'm going to come through. I'm going to throw it down. Absolutely. We'll come, come through. We'll get a good workout in. We'll play some ball. We'll do some. I'll show you the mountains. Um, so it'll be cool for sure. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Absolutely. So, well, thank you again, and absolutely, let's keep in touch. And yeah, I'll, I'll keep you posted once the episode's um, released and everything else. So, I appreciate it. Thank you, Everett. Cheers, man. All right, that was Dr. Olaya, physician in London, England. Thank you so much for tuning in. And to those in the game and those on their way up, keep grinding and don't let anyone take your dream away from you. <laughs> <laughs>